There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast where we're going to take a deep dive into the events that are currently taking place in the Middle East. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. We are joined by two uh, experts and thoughtful observers on what is going on in the Middle East and in national security issues more broadly. Uh, Mara Rudman is a senior counselor at the Center for American Progress and distinguished professor at the University of Virginia. She previously served as Deputy Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs in the Obama and Clinton administrations. Hi, Mara. How are you doing? Hi. I'm doing okay. Good. The world is not. The world is definitely not. Natan Sachs is an expert on Israeli foreign policy, its domestic policy, and U.S. policy towards the Middle East. He currently serves as the Director of the Brookings Institution Center for Middle East Policy. Hi, Natan. Welcome. It's your first time on our podcast. Um, it's Thanks been a rough week, me. but I hope you are personally doing okay. Thank you, as well as can be. Uh, yeah, so let us let us start with just your personal perspectives. We've had probably uh, eight or ten different experts on our different podcasts this week talking about where we are. And, of course, every day we move closer. This podcast is being recorded Um on Friday, towards the end of this week, um, with Israeli forces uh, seemingly ready to go on to Gaza at at some point, um, uh, having just uh, not ordered but uh, uh, advocated that the people who live in northern Gaza, the 1.1 million people who live in northern Gaza, um, move, if they can, to southern Gaza. uh, I think what is on everybody's mind is where do we go from here, but uh, uh, that and any other perspectives you want to start off with um, will be welcome. Mara? Thanks, David. Uh, well, I, I would say to start, this is uh, a horrific time all around, uh, certainly for what's happening in Israel, what Israelis are going through, the worst uh slaughter of Israeli civilians, of, of Jews in Israel, um, but be clear also Arab Israelis were slaughtered by the Hamas terrorists um, Saturday and Sunday. Um, 
worst slaughter since since the time of the Holocaust in terms of of innocent lives and the horrific nature um, of the killings uh, involved in the hostage taking. Um, and at the same time, we are seeing again um, just the challenges for the many innocent civilians living in Gaza, no place to go, uh, and the huge challenges for um, Israeli leadership that quite, to me, quite obviously need to uh, deter any possibility of the kind of action that Hamas took recurring um, and to do so within observation of the laws of war and to do so in a place like Gaza where uh, uh, Hamas terrorists have already shown their absolute disregard for human life, and that's human life, whether it's Palestinian or Israeli. And these are people who know the ground in Gaza um, and uh, have obviously have lived there, have built an extraordinary tunnel structure, know the ins and outs of Gaza City and of Jabalia, who, the two locations that are in the northern part of Gaza that Israel is asking uh, folks to evacuate from very difficult for the people there to do that. And so my concern on that front is, uh, I share Tom Friedman's uh, concern and layout that that it may very well be Hamas' intention to draw uh, Israel into kind of urban warfare, the quagmire that Gaza is and, and could become at, at tremendous cost. And so very, very tough uh, for Israel strategically and tactically in figuring out the right way to approach uh, this upcoming uh, ground invasions. I know that's a lot, David, but there's there's a lot of different threads to this. And we haven't even discussed how this impacts uh, Ukraine and the support there and Russia dynamics. There's a whole geopolitical context of this as well. But I want to kind of zoom into what's happening on the ground right now uh, between um, Israel and Hamas. Uh, well, it's a good place to start. We can come back to those things. Natan? Thanks. Um, I agree very much with what Mara said. Um, these are horrific times, and um, I'm heartbroken to say I think they're going to get a lot worse in the short term for millions of people. Um, obviously, in Israel, this is an unprecedented crisis. This has already sort of instantly become the worst, darkest day in Israel's history, and that's how Israelis are referring to it and thinking about it. It's a small and tight-knit country, over a 1,000 dead in essentially a day. Um, so kind of everyone knows someone or someone who is closely related to someone. Um, and in Gaza, this is certainly not the first time, but I, th I think because of how this began, it could easily be the worst time. Um, Israel is, I've written elsewhere, I think Israel is in a very different mindset, completely different mindset than in previous rounds. It's gone through a bit of a 9-11 moment. <clears throat> which can be exaggerated. I don't mean to overstate that analogy, but it is, I think, apt in one important way, which is that Israelis are willing to do things um, to incur costs, but also to exact costs of a completely different magnitude than they were before. And so if in the past there was this question of how do you get out of this round, what's the off-ramp, today the mood in Israel, but also the thinking among policymakers, including many who failed miserably this week, um, is that what happened cannot cannot uh, repeat itself. Not only what happened on Saturday, but perhaps the status quo ante that we've had for a decade and a half, the horrific status quo of uh, these brutal, brutal fighting 
every few years, and this stifling Israeli-Egyptian blockade on 2 million people. I say this, I don't know where it will end up in terms of the Israeli strategic goal, but I'll just say that the possibility of Israel trying to topple Hamas as the governing power in the Gaza Strip is certainly on the table. It would be extremely costly, extremely, especially for Gazans, but also for the Israelis. As Mara said, this is a very, very difficult environment in which to fight. And the answer to what happens the day after is completely open. Israelis have no answer for that. They didn't before. It's part of the reason they never did it. They don't have an answer now. But given what happened this week, um, the Israeli retort would be, I don't have an answer, but I know that's not possible. If that's the case, if they go all the way in, you know, it goes both ways. On the one hand, the cost is going to be absolutely horrific. Um, on the other hand, perhaps we get out of this cycle, this decade and a half, perhaps the blockade can end or at least change dramatically. Um, I don't know what the day after would be. I wish I did. I'll say one more thing, and I'll and then that um, another huge complicating factor is is of course the hostages, the number, but also who they are. Uh, it's a very large number of hostages, civilians of all ages, from literally babies to their eighties, uh, also American citizens, I should say, and so. That complicates things dramatically. And in normal times, I think we would not see a ground invasion. In normal times, we would see something completely different because of the hostages. But again, I think because of this very different mindset, this sense of Rubicon has been crossed, Israel might very well be going in, trying to minimize, of course, uh, harm to hostages, but knowing that they will not uh, be spared completely, which is uh, very different from the Israeli MO in the past with its own hostages. So, Mara, the response of the Biden administration has been swift. It has been strong. It has largely, uh, to my listening, been pitch perfect. Uh, you know, the, the solidarity with uh, Israel, outrage at the crimes committed, outrage at Hamas, uh, strong defense of Israel's right to self-defense. Um uh, And I would add, you know, the president has also been clear that what must follows should be done within the constraints of international law. Um, having said that, in Israel, it's been interesting, the response. First of all, it's been extremely enthusiastic. Half of all Israelis listened to the speech. Um, uh, it is in stark contrast to the way most Israelis feel about Bibi Netanyahu right now. Um, uh, and I might add, uh, just as a footnote uh, to the uh, uh, remarks of Donald Trump earlier this week about Hamas, you know, being so smart or Hezbollah being so smart. But, um, I, you know, I sense that the Israeli right is hearing Biden in the way they want to hear him, which is essentially uh, the U.S. is behind us 100%. We can do whatever we want. And I sense that the Biden administration has been sending a message behind the scenes, which is use restraint, eliminate Hamas, but you know it, this thing will boomerang back if there are high civilian casualties, if Israelis commit crimes to uh, you know in response to the crimes of Hamas. What's your reaction to how the Biden administration has handled this? and the the way people are hearing it. Thanks, David. I, I agree with you 
that the administration and President Biden himself uh, has been on the mark uh, in both what he has said, how he has spoken about this, and how he has acted. I, I think this is an illustration of uh, how deeply he feels the connection to the state of Israel, to the people of Israel, um, how much he understands the deep connection between uh, what happens there and U.S. national security and U.S. national interests, um, and how important it is, his understanding of how important it is at a time like, at a time like this to make sure that all Israelis know uh, that the United States has, has their back. Um, that the United States is there for them. He has also, though, it's not just what he said privately, David. It's not just the kind of private messages. In every public statement you have heard from President Biden, from Jake Sullivan, um, from our secretaries of state and defense, you hear the importance of, uh, yes, we are with you. Yes, we have your back. And yes, we know and understand some version of you're, you will act in ways that uh, comply with uh, international laws of war. Um, and that is consistent. And if they are, they are saying that publicly, so you can be sure that privately um, they are having conversations about what that means <clears throat> and how to execute effectively on that front. And I will just say in that context, I'd also comment, Natan, on, on what you said. I agree with you, except that for any military strategist, for any political leader, you have to have some planning for the day after. If history has taught us anything, and even and U.S. mistakes in various parts of the world, you've got to be three steps ahead, even when you're in the middle of it. And so among the challenges in how we get to the um, outcome that I agree with you, ultimately should be the outcome of, of um, Restoring, I would say, restoring Gaza's connection to the West Bank, of having it be a place where Palestinian people can actually live and thrive and have hope for a future, an opportunity in a future. Um, there's got to be some figuring out what has been, what has gone wrong over the last 15 years. It's, it is absolutely a lot of it is at Hamas doorstep. Some of it is at Egypt. Some of it is at Israel's uh, doorstep as well. And how, for example, if it's at all possible for the Palestinian Authority, which still has ties in, in Gaza, uh, pays teacher salaries last time I checked, um, had, though doesn't have the power or control, how the Palestinian Authority, both in the West Bank and Gaza, could be, uh, be put in a position where they are capable to, for example, take the reins, which is not where things are now. And that's, again, something all parties are responsible for. So, David, I'm sorry, I know that's you know, going beyond where President Biden is. Uh, in public statements, but I am sure that it is part of the, uh, I would guess it is part of the discussions uh, that U.S. officials are having with Israelis as they are moving forward in the immediate. I would hope it is, because the the, 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 the consequence of a moment like this one, uh, and, and such moments are rare, and that's a good thing, uh, is that people tend to think in the moment. They tend to think about um, uh, reactively. Um, and if you take a step back and you say, what are U.S. national interests? What are Israel's national interests? What are the Palestinian national interests? All of them involve some kind of political settlement or progress towards a political settlement. 
that there is no military settlement that moves you forward. And so the question is, how do you transition from one to the other? And that's complicated. Um, and Natan, I think it's complicated, just to go back to the original premise of my question, um, by the fact that I get the sense in the body language and and the and the and the and, and via the voices of a number of people from the Israeli right supporters of the Israeli right and even the Israeli center right um, that they think this is an opportunity to put a shoulder into the policies that they've had as opposed to seeing this as 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 the, the gateway to something different. Um, by and large, yes, I agree very much with what Mara said. I think that's part of the huge challenge, policy challenge we face right now, because this was thrust upon the Israeli decision makers, who most of whom would have been happy to continue with some version of the status quo for indefinitely. Um, Israel's going into this with no real vision for the day. Who, who thought they could, Natan? Well, they right? did. That's yeah, part of the problem, that. right? They believed that the status quo was sustainable when most people right. who were dealing with the facts saw that exactly. it wouldn't be. Now, where it is now, I think I think you're exactly right, David. They heard President Biden absolutely loved what he said. They loved it for, I think, his first goal, which he achieved very well, which was to convey where the United States stands and how it sees what happened. It sees what happened in deeply moral terms of human disgust for what the president correctly identified as ISIS or even worse than ISIS acts on Saturday. And there's so much nonsense going on, especially on Twitter, which I try to avoid, but I uh, fail to often. Um, it really, we can lose sight of some basic moral truths here. And that is that what happened there was absolutely that horrific and that it is qualitatively different from other things, even though the human uh, toll of many of the things like a military operation could be horrendous. But he had other goals in that speech. They heard, one, they heard another one, which is extremely important, and that is, I think correctly, the administration believes it has a major role in deterring a second northern front from starting. If Hezbollah joins the fight, the war would be far worse. Hezbollah is far stronger than Hamas. And the devastation on Lebanon, which is already miserable and reeling from its years of economic and political crisis, would become far worse, and it could embroil others for Iran down the road. And the United States not only conveyed a very clear message in the president's speech, but also sent the Gerald Ford um, battle group, uh, the carrier battle group, to the eastern Mediterranean and has signaled that, that U.S. firepower may be involved. And Israelis see that. And I really think, you know, B Biden is not just popular this week in Israel. Because of the vacuum of leadership in Israel, he's earned himself a, a sort of a spot in Israeli history. He will be remembered. 1973, whatever you think of Nixon here, or whatever I think of Nixon here, um, Israelis remember Kissinger and, and Nixon for saving the country in 73. I think Biden will, will be remembered in those historic terms. He had two other objectives. One was the fate of American hostages. And of course, he deployed American officials in that regard. And a lot, of, a lot is happening there, of course, behind the scenes. And the last goal, which you mentioned both of you very well, he never misses the point that this has to be conducted according to international law. I think there's an important distinction here to make. International law, including proportionality, does not entail the body count right? that we see on the headlines of major newspapers, shall we say, 
which compare, you know, this number of Palestinians died and that number of Israelis, and therefore it's either proportional or not proportional. As if today Israel could kill a thousand Palestinians and it would be okay, but last time not because Iron Dome saved Israelis. Proportionality, which is a very serious and extremely important element of international law in this regard, has to do with the proportionality between the means used and the military objective, the, the legitimate military objective. And therefore, I get back to my point before and, and Mara's, Mara's important qualification. The question is, what is the military objective? It, if it is simply to punish, it is both immoral and probably politically uh, useless, policy useless. If it is something else, it might be horrific, and I, I'm not trying to advocate that, by the way, but it is a different story. It's a different story, both in terms of what, what are the means that could be legally used, but also in terms of what possibilities open up in the future and what onus it puts on all of us to try to think about what that future must look like. And I agree with Mara completely. It, it eventually, if anything good comes out of it, which is hard to imagine right now, it would have to include reincorporation with the West Bank and hopefully a Palestinian authority with some kind of legitimacy among its own people that could govern it somewhere down the road. It's hard to imagine them coming on, the, on Israeli tanks. That's not going to happen. But down the road, perhaps. Um, these are all speculative. So in short, yes, I think the speech was resa heard resoundingly. I'm sorry, and one last point. I think you're right that the right wing, the hawks in Israel, see this as almost a carte blanche. And I do believe, though, that the leadership, Netanyahu, but now also some cooler heads around him, uh, Gantz and Eisenkot, um, know, understand quite clearly what the Americans were actually trying to convey, which was not restraint necessarily, but it was adherence to international law. Um, but the Israeli right, of course, on Gaza is a little more complicated than it is on the West Bank. In the West Bank, there is a large contingency now of de facto annexation that would like to enlarge settlements and de facto annex. The Gaza Strip, there is a very small minority that would like to go back to Gaza. The vast majority of Israelis imagine a future in which Gaza floats down the sea somewhere and conjoins with Egypt. That's what they were dreaming of until Friday. And so hawkishness, even absolute brutality, yes, absolutely. That's been sp spoken of in the worst terms possible the last few days. But resettling Gaza, um, incorporating that into, into a greater Israel, that's a different story entirely and one that I think most of the right wing would not want today. Um, in that sense, they've, they've sort of divorced from that in their minds, and they may find themselves re-wedded to that as a consequence of this war. Um, this is the point in the show where we take a little bit of a break, and I say thanks to everybody who's not a member uh, for listening, uh, but you can't go on with us because we're going to the members-only portion of the podcast. Uh, and if you want to go on, and I think you should want to, then you go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. It helps us keep doing what we're doing, which is lots and lots of expert-based podcasts where we go in-depth um, on important policy and political issues. Um, for those of you who are not members, however, right now we say bye-bye. For those of you who are members, we say stand by.